0: You've reached the HyperGuy Motivational Podcast. Thank you for being here today. I have a wonderful, wonderful guest on, Sean Shepard. Thank you for being here, Sean.
1: Thanks, Martin. I, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to be here.
0: Well, I'm going to go over a little bit about your history because you've done a lot of amazing things and you're doing so much. You have a great varied career and you're doing so much for the community. Um, so I'm really, really happy to have you on. Uh, Sean is the CEO of Game Changer. It used to be formerly known as Embrace. Uh, he is a graduate of Georgetown with a BA in psychology. He has an MA in sports psychology from San Diego State University. He's a native of Brooklyn, New York, but he spent most of his life in South Brunswick, New Jersey. And he was in San Diego for quite a bit of his life as well. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to start going into more de- deeply into all your wonderful history here. But I wanted to ask you, where were you like born and raised? And what was that like for you growing up?
1: So ironically enough, my parents are our bed natives are from Brooklyn and we were living in Brooklyn when my mother was pregnant with me. And her OBGYN was across the river in New Jersey. And so I was actually born in New Jersey while we were living in Brooklyn. So when we went back home, after I was born, we went back home to Brooklyn where I spent the first four, little over four years of my life there and really being shaped by family and loved ones in, in Brooklyn. You know, my grandparents were there and then we moved to New Jersey. And that was pretty traumatic, especially for my mom. My mom did not want to move to New Jersey. My father wanted to get out of um, New York and and move to a place that was in his eyes, a little a little safer. But we were always back and forth to Brooklyn to see my mom's parents, my my dad's mom. And, you know, that's how it was for, you know, most of my life back and forth to New York, because that's where our family was.
0: And let me ask you, what was your relationship like with your mom and dad growing up? And do you have any brothers and sisters?
1: So único. I'm an only, I'm an only child. And my mom's an only child. And I don't look at myself this way, but, I'm a military kid. My father was in the Vietnam War. And I never looked at us as a military family because I was young when he was serving in that war. I was born in 1968. And when my father came back from the from the war, my mother said he was a completely different person. And that was the beginning of the end of their marriage. My parents have known each other since they were kids. And that war really wound up destroying our family unit, you know. So my dad wasn't really involved in in my life except when he didn't have a woman in his life. My dad, when my dad died, he was on his third wife, and so I saw him in between, you know, whoever he was dating, and that's when my dad would take me to New York Knicks games and take me to to New York Jets games, unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, he cursed me with being a Knicks fan and a Jets fan because they haven't won anything since 69 and 72, respectively, 73. So um, my dad was a good person. He wasn't necessarily a great, great dad. He wasn't there all the time. My grandfather, my mom's father filled that role and he was my best friend. Well, by the time he died in 2000, my mom, with me being an only child and her being an only child, it's been an interesting relationship Two only children, one being male and one being female, but my mom's still alive. And, you know, we have that mother son bond and she's supported me through thick and thin in life. And so that's, that's been our relationship.
0: And well, how does your mother influence you growing up? What did she do growing up And in- how does she influence your development? Do you remember when you, when you think back on those years growing up? It was
1: difficult. My mom was getting over breaking up with the love of her life. You know, um, wasn't always in a good mood. And, you know, I was there rem- reminding my mother of my father. So my mom was tough on me. It was, uh, it wasn't. A pleasant upbringing all the time. She's very strict. I got got a lot of spankings, man. Whether whether I deserve them or not, I got them. And um, the good thing about that is growing up, not wanting to get in trouble because I didn't want to come home to a spanking. So the decisions that I made out in the street, you know, I had a fear for my mother. And that wasn't necessarily a healthy thing for our relationship, but it did keep me out of of trouble because the last thing I wanted to do was have that happen to me. Nothing out in the street or, you know, getting in trouble at school didn't concern me. But if I got in trouble at school and my mom was notified, then I had issues. Right. So, um, that kept me out of trouble. But one of the things that I saw At an early age, my mother had saved a newspaper clipping. She saves everything. And I saw her working at a soup kitchen. There was a picture of her. And I saw my mom in a different light. My mom was kind and giving to other people. And that really struck me. And I said to myself, you know, I'd like to do that one day. And as it turns out, one of the first programs that we had through embrace our nonprofit was a homeless outreach program that we conducted in San Diego, California for eight years. So I kind of followed in my mom's footsteps in terms of, 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 of giving. Uh, But I didn't know that she was that type of person because I didn't see that person inside the house growing up. But, you know, she really planted that seed in me just by seeing her do that.
0: And you said you had role models, your grandparents were your role models. Um, how were the role models for you? And were you always involved with sports? And we're going to get into that for a part later. You're a great athlete. You're a good athlete. Um, how? Um, What kept you busy during that time? And how were you doing in school and your, the influence of your grandparents?
1: So my grandmother was a worrywart. She was actually kind of a, a, a little bit annoying. She didn't want me to have a bicycle, didn't want me to have a skateboard, didn't want me to cross the street. And it was like, yo, yeah, man relax chill she was not a chill person she wasn't a relaxed person but she wanted the best for me and so you know she paid for my high school class ring she paid for me to go to summer day camp every year um growing up my mom did not want me to be idle during the summer so i never stopped once school ended most kids got a break during the summer you didn't have to get up early i had to continue to get up early to go to camp, which I didn't like, I didn't like to have to continue to get up early, but I did like camp where I learned how to ride horses, shoot archery, ride go-karts, and and this was a Jewish day camp. So I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, and Catholic college, and in between Catholic grade school and Catholic high school, I went to Jewish day camp. There's 3,000 Jewish campers and me. So, uh, you know, we're at a point right now that I'm I'm mentioning Jewish people, I'm not anti-Semitic, just saying. The camp was run by, it was owned by a Jewish person, and and 99% of the people that went to that Jewish day camp were Jewish. It was a wonderful experience for me, and I wouldn't have been able to do it if it wasn't for my grandmother paying for that, because my mother didn't, my mother worked for the federal government, didn't make a lot of money, so my grandparents helped her financially with making sure that, I had everything that I needed as their only grandchild. So that was my grandmother's influence on on me. My grandfather, now they're both from the South. My grandfather was born in 1917 in Virginia. And they saw my grandfather live through some of the ugliest periods of time as it relates to race relations in this country. And being a black man from the South, Growing up amongst the Ku Klux Klan and overtly and violently racist white people, my grandfather taught me to never judge a person by their skin color. He taught me to judge people based on how they treated me, not on how they looked. And I want to say that that's the most valuable thing that I've ever received in my life was that advice from my grandfather and how to go about my life based on what he told me. And you would think someone that grew up in that era would not feel that way. But evidently during that time, he came into contact with people who were black, white, and everything in between. And there were some people who treated him well, and some people who didn't treat him well. And those people were of different skin colors. And so that's the that's the lesson that I've taken with me and carried with me throughout my entire life.
0: What were your grades like growing up, and when did you start getting into sports?
1: I was an A-B student. Well, when, when I was in high school, I got straight A-pluses in biology. So I was a good student in high school. And then I got to college and got my first F, my after my first semester, freshman year. I I told you what life was like in the house with my mom. So when I was finally separated from her and on my own, I spent that first semester of college kind of letting loose and not really putting school work first. So I got the first F of my life in college. And from that point on, you know, I was a B, C, C plus student in college because college for me was an education on myself. Who who was I? I did enough to to graduate in four years. I went to summer school every single year at Georgetown. And then when I went to grad school, and, and by the way, Mark, Martin, I hated school. I could not stand school. When I was in... Grade school, I would wake up every morning and tell my mother I had a stomach ache and I couldn't go to school. She'd say, fine. Stomach hurts, get get dressed, you're going to school. When I got to grad school, I was an A student. Um, I had learned how to become a student at that level. I was finally focusing on something that was of great interest to me. And, and I was also paying for my grad school. So I was very serious about grad school. And I was a a student in grad
0: school so let me ask you in high in high school did you know what you wanted to do in terms of your major did you go directly to college no. and and like no. how, how did that transform for you did you i mean you obviously had good enough grades to get into a great school when you were going through high school did you say i want to go ahead and study this or study this and and like i said i know you you're you're an athlete i, I can tell i mean you work out you take care of yourself were you into sports at the time as well
1: I'm an ex-washed-up athlete. Yeah, I played I play football in high school. Uh, I was an all-state football player in the state of New Jersey in, in, in high school, and I had good grades. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to, to, to do once I got to college. And for whatever reason, psychology, like the study of human behavior, that was really interesting to me. Like, what takes place up here in your head that has an effect on what you do, your behavior? And I was really interested in it, and I did well, you know, grade wise, psychology classes. And that's when I realized during that time, um, I had seen something. John Smoltz, pitcher for the Braves, was seeing a sports psychologist, and they were going through mental imagery and, and a whole bunch of different things. That, that led to, that he attributed to a, a lot of his success as a pitcher in Major League Baseball. I said, I want to do that. That sounds like something that's for me. Sports and psychology. Well, I graduated from Georgetown. Uh, and before that, I'm doing research on which schools are the best in the country in sports psychology. San Diego State. In Springfield College in Massachusetts. Now, I grew up on the East Coast, shoveling the driveway all my life, and now I have a choice between San Diego and the Boston area. It was an easy decision for me. I wanted to go to San Diego, California. And I got involved in the program, as fate would have it, two people, one of which is still prominently involved in sports, Robert Griffith, who had played safety for the Minnesota Vikings, went to San Diego State. And Tony Clark, who is the current, I don't know if the CEO or executive director of the Players Union for Major League Baseball. Though I was friends with those two guys at San Diego State. I was looking for a job. They introduced me to the strength and conditioning coach in the athletic department. I interviewed with him. I got the job, I'm working in a weight room, helping football players, basketball players, primarily, athletes in general, to become bigger, faster, stronger, more conditioned, eat right, and and I'm coaching them on how to execute Olympic lifts correctly because I had to learn them. And I fell in love with it, Martin, immediately. But I realized that a lot of the things that I learned in psychology, was going to directly help me become an excellent coach. How to motivate people to do things that they don't necessarily want to do at the time. You're going to school all day. You got classes all day. Now you got to come and work out and go to practice. A lot of guys and gals don't want to do that. So how do you motivate them to put forth their best effort when they don't want to? So my psychology background actually really, really helped me as a coach.
0: So when you, so you went from your master's program and then you went, you graduated and you got that, you went, you started working at San Diego State directly?
1: So as I'm, as I'm getting my master's, I'm now a graduate assistant coach. I'm getting paid by the school to coach as I'm pursuing my master's degree. Um, I landed my first job shortly after I had finished my coursework, but I was still a graduate assistant. I still had a little bit of leeway time and my first job was at Kansas State. My first full-time job was to be a strength coach at Kansas State University. Um, wow. for how, of,
0: how did, well, I was gonna ask you how that happen? You went, you so did San Diego State want to keep you there? Or you said, you know, and, and and let me ask you this: when you were getting your 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 master's degree, how did you get so good at that? I mean, you went from as a graduate assistant, you were a psychology person, you went directly into Strength and conditioning? Could they tell you were working out? How did you sell yourself?
1: Well, um, when I put my mind to something, if I'm if I'm motivated, passionate, inspired about something, I'm going to give it my best effort. And typically, when I put my best effort forth, I'm I'm going to achieve the goal that I want. If I want something, I'm going to to get it. I wanted to be a strength coach. I'm going to share this with you. I'm on a phone interview, and I want people who are listening to this podcast or watching this to pay close attention to what I'm about to say, because as much as some people may want to dismiss the role that race plays in sports and in the corporate environment, I want you to listen to what I'm about to tell you. I'm interviewing with this coach who's the head coach at Kansas, head strength and conditioning coach at at, at Kansas State. His name was Rod Cole. I'm going to say his name. And at the end of the call, he says, well, Sean, I think that you're a fantastic candidate to fill this position. And I'd hire you right on the spot. He says, but I have to hire a person of color for this position. I said, coach, I'm black. He says, you are? Yeah, I'm black. I get the job. And there may be some people say, oh, your skin color helped you. Your skin color helped you get the job. They had to hire a black person for this one mid-management position because of a lack of black people in the athletic department at Kansas State. Same thing happened at Boston College. Similar thing happened at Ohio State. Me as a person of color, they will earmark a mid level position, just one, by the way, so that no one can say that they're not a diverse environment. Funny how they don't earmark that position for the athletic director. They don't earmark those positions. They don't earmark those positions at the top level, mid management. That's how I got the job. That's how I got the job.
0: Well, let me ask you this: When you when you started to do these strength and conditioning positions, um, can you tell me like what was what was the biggest challenge you had um, in that position, working with staff and working with uh, students as well?
1: My biggest challenge was the adults. My greatest joy was working with the student athletes. They hadn't yet been tarnished by the world. They're you know teens early 20s, Um, they treated you with the respect that you treated them, right? It was the coaches that more often than not, overwhelmingly, from a demographic standpoint, did not reflect the, the student athletes that were making money for the school. So I'm interacting with adults who are primarily white, who aren't necessarily used to interacting with someone who looks like me. They were spoiled brats, Martin. If they didn't get their way, they acted like no one had ever told them no before in their lives. And that was my experience with most of the coaches that I had to work with. Student athletes, regardless, you know, whatever demographic they were, male, female, black, white, Latino, Asian, great. The adults, you can have them.
0: So <laughs> let me my so,
1: experience in, on, on the collegiate
0: level. So let me ask you this. Like, what were some of the typical problems when you're like the strength and conditioning coach? Is that is that for the entire university? And did you have to move to different sports? And and what were some of your challenges working with students? And I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to what you're talking about with the adults in a minute. But what was your challenge like with students? I mean, I'm sure you had a mentor some of them, and was there any pressure on you? to get athletes back on the field when they physically weren't ready?
1: I wouldn't say that there was, there was pressure on me because at at that level, the strength and conditioning coach is taken out of the equation. Same thing on the professional level. It's about the team doctor. So that's really a question for the team doctor to clear someone to play. I wasn't clearing anybody to play. Right. And, and then at that point, rehab starts in sports medicine. And once they've gotten to a certain point, they are given to the strength and conditioning staff to begin the strengthening rehabilitation portion of their rehab. Um, Not range of motion. That starts long before they get turned over to the strength and conditioning coach. Uh,
0: Did you you ever have a situation where – you saw a student you're like you know this person um is probably not in a good space to play right now because of the um they're having these certain challenges and how do you how do you deal with that with the students that they they push themselves maybe farther than they, maybe they should push themselves so you want to pre- you want to prevent them from having an injury how do you do that how do you have that conversation with somebody when they want to become a professional or they want to they want to play put push, push themselves beyond what they maybe physically can do.
1: Trust, you, you have to have a relationship with with young folks where they understand and sense that you're a genuine person and that you care about them as a person, not just as an athlete. And there's very few people, when you get to a school like Ohio State, There's very few people that are looking at you as a person. They're looking at you as um, a commodity. Are you producing or are you not producing? And I personally didn't care whether they were, you know, I wanted them to do their best, but I wasn't going to not spend time with you because you're not a starter on the basketball team and you're the 13th guy who doesn't play. You know, if I liked you, you'd know it. If I didn't like you, I was still going to do my job. But then we we just didn't have that relationship. So I didn't really have challenges with any of of, of the athletes. You know, so some athletes needed to be disciplined. Like, if you're not on time, you know you're meeting me at 6 a.m. And we're doing gassers. And you're you're messing with my personal schedule now. So I'm going to run you. We shouldn't be here. You should be on time.
0: So now I get to, what is a gasser? You have to tell me what the gasser is.
1: So, for a, a gasser on a basketball court, you're running from the baseline to the free throw line and back, to the midcourt line and back, to the free throw line on the far end of the court and back, and then baseline to baseline. And you have to do that in a certain amount of time. And if you miss your time, you've added another gasser. You get a certain amount of rest, and we might start out with if it was – I have a, a, a situation with a guy who's coaching in the NBA right now, and he's probably my favorite athlete that I've ever coached on the collegiate level. He did something. I had to run him. Didn't want to run him. I showed, He showed up. He did one gasser, and he was expecting me to do – have him do like 10 gassers. He did one gasser. And I said to him, I said, are we ever going to have to be here again? And he goes, nah, Shep, never. We ended at one gasser. He went back to sleep or went to class or I went on about my business and we never had to do it again.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And do you have the same routines? Do you have to set up a different routine for every sport? So you have to kind of like... Oh,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Because... From a, from a weightlifting standpoint, you can't put a football player on the same program as a, as a swimmer, right? So you have to look at the movements of each athlete, the, the energy systems that are used for each sport, and then give them workouts based on the movements and those energy systems that they're utilizing to play their sport. Like golf, there is no real energy system. You're walking and swinging, right? But it's range of motion, it's it's flexibility. It's torque, it's power in your lower body, power in your core for your swing. So you have to break down each sport and write workouts accordingly.
0: And let me ask you this. What is the role? Can you explain to me what the role nutrition is in performance? And and some people would say, there's some athletes I've spoken to say, I eat anything I want. And then there's some people that say they they swear by you know you should have your nutrition right. Do you have any thoughts on that? What's your but you your experience?
1: I do. If we're just talking generally speaking. You know, eat fruits and vegetables and and and, and protein, right? Uh, drink a lot of water. Our body is our body consists of just almost 90 percent water. So I, I'm I'm always drinking water. You know, uh, it's my favorite beverage to drink. There are some freaks, though, and I've coached some freaks who could take off from lifting weights and take off from running and eat whatever they want and show up after the summer has gone and come, pass their, their um uh, their conditioning test with ease, still be able to do reps of 325 pounds on the bench. There's, just, there's only been a couple of couple of guys like that, and a couple of females like that everybody else you better stay on top of it because it doesn't take much for your muscles to atrophy when you're used to lifting weights you're used to exercising like you, you we talked about me coming back from 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 vacation I took eight days off and for my body eight days is a lifetime of not lifting and exercising and kickboxing and swimming and yoga and I'm not you know, rice and beans and, 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 and not exercising really affects my body pretty quickly. And that's probably the case for most people, right? But for some elite athletes, you know, they can, there are people who say I can eat anything. But when you show them how your body responds and how your body feels when you actually eat right and exercise regularly and, and drink the right things, You can tell that your body tells you what is good for it by how you feel after you eat Thanksgiving. You feel like a sludge from eating all that turkey, gravy, stuffing, rice, carbs, sweets. You feel like you want to go to sleep. You have no energy. You You eat a great salad. You eat some fruit. You drink some water. You feel it good, right? You feel good. And that's our body's telling us this is what we should be consuming as opposed to that stuff.
0: Wow. So how so how how do you keep your discipline during those holidays? What advice would you give people in terms of their nutrition?
1: I don't know, man. I mean, you know they they call things a cheat meal. If 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 you have the discipline to just keep Thanksgiving the one day that you just go in and not continue to go in with the leftovers because most people love that. Like you look forward to Thanksgiving, but it's the leftovers. Like I have an ex-girlfriend who's, who freezes Thanksgiving leftovers so that she can eat Thanksgiving meal in in March if she wants to. And I'm like, that's pretty smart, (laughs) you know, but for your average person, if you have the discipline, have fun and go in on Thanksgiving, man. The food is good. You're with family. It's the holidays. Um, But if you're looking for, for uh discipline just make sure the next day man you're 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 back at it go for go for that run go for that swim get 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 in the gym um because mentally that'll make you feel like all right i went in on thanksgiving i'm back to working out it's not going to make that much of a difference
0: can you tell me what in terms of mindset and goal setting the difference that you found in elite athletes versus just your regular athlete. Um, You know, do you see a difference in mindset?
1: I do. The athletes that I've coached that made it to the NBA, and some of them have – I've coached one Hall of Fame football player, and I can't say that I had very much to do with his Hall of Fame career, even when he was starting out at San Diego State. It was Marshall Marshall Falk. My first year coaching was his last year playing football there. So, although I coached him, I was learning. I also coached a a guy that played in the NBA All-Star game. The difference between people who make it to the league and are awarded with six-year, $90 million contracts are people that you tell them to do something once and they're not going to stop. They're self-motivated. I didn't have to tell certain people to get in the gym. I didn't have to tell certain people that this is what you need to do to build up your body. They knew it and were like there, a sponge, feverish about it, one-track minded, completely focused. This is what I want, and nothing and no one is going to stop me from reaching my goal. They were you. They didn't need a babysitter either. I've coached a lot of guys. And a lot of females that could have played professionally, but they needed a babysitter. They needed someone. They'd be fine if you were there making sure they did it. But when you leave college, it's kind of like, Martin, when we're in season as opposed to when we're out season in college. In season, your whole schedule is made for you. You have to go to class. You have to be to study hall. You have to be to practice. All of your time is allotted for you. In the offseason, it's not like that. That's when athletes get into trouble. That's when they get injured because they're not doing what they should be on their own. That's why we we have a spring program, you know, to make sure. But it's summertime. What are you doing during the summertime? And the best athletes, the most successful athletes, they're they're self-driven, like Kobe Bryant, that Mamba mentality. You don't have to tell me to do this. I'm getting up on my own. It's not always easy, but this is what I want. Um, Story about Kevin Johnson, basketball player. I believe he went to Arizona State. Legendary story about him.
0: You mean uh, Kevin Johnson, a basketball player?
1: Yeah, who who, who owns Fixins.
0: Uh, yeah, you're talking about Kevin Johnson, the, uh, that played at Cal, the basketball player that Sacramento. Okay, okay, okay.
1: Yes, yes, yes. He played at Cal, oh, and sorry. he was
0: a mayor in Sacramento. Uh huh. Right, right. Kevin
1: Johnson. Thatcher- I, I, I only
0: know that because I went to Cal. So. <laughs> so.
1: Owens Vixens down in in DTLA. Okay. So. He is. He's in the gym on a Friday night. And. The, the person who's working at the university is locking up the athletic facility, and he hears someone, he hears someone in the gym dribbling gym the basketball. And he comes in, and it's Kevin Johnson. The lights aren't even on. And, you know, the custodian says, why are you in here on a Friday night? You're in college when you could be out having a good time. You're a college student. He said, because... Going to those parties is not going to get me to where I want to be. Travis Lee, baseball player at San Diego State, he did not go to parties. He didn't drink. All he did was live, sleep, breathe, and eat baseball. Look what happened to him.
0: Well, it's it's that same determination that I see. Um, if you just like kind of like if you just go ahead, the same parallel with people that achieve other things in their life. That become great authors or are doing a ama- uh, CEO's, that same drive that those athletes have is just an uncanny ability to be focused and they just have dogged determination.
1: Right. Absolutely. It helps to have a good fence around you that supports that type of effort, that people that are going to understand that, look, this is what he or she wants to do and I'm here for it. Not discourage them, say, I, you know. You know, you may not make it. What are you going to do if you don't make it? You don't even talk about not making it. This is what I'm going to do, and the rest is history.
0: Sean, what kind of advice would you give to somebody if they to get over obstacles? Like you must have learned something, some advice that you give athletes or other people in your life. That and we're going to start getting into your nonprofits after this. But um, what advice would you give to somebody to stay focused? On their goals and if they don't have that focus what what kind of advice would you give somebody to develop that focus
1: choose your friends carefully you know the expression you can't choose your family but you can choose your friends if you're not around like-minded people who are supportive and they're about positive things in life if they're not that way oftentimes people will get derailed by the people that they choose to spend time with, right? So you often hear that expression, well, he or she was running around with the wrong crowd. Sometimes that person was the wrong crowd, right? But more often than not, an athlete is not of the wrong crowd, but they're spending time with people who, who don't make decisions that are in line with your lifestyle and where you want to go. So that would be the biggest piece of advice that I have is be very, very careful about who you surround yourself with positive people, people who are about achieving positive things. um, People who are goal oriented, people who are, or people of character. What does that mean? What you do when nobody else is looking. That defines your character. You're of low character when you do foul things when no one else is looking, but you do the right things in the light of day. That's not a person of character. So that would be the biggest piece of advice that I would give to people is make sure that you surround yourself with quality human beings.
0: And what about if I, hey, you know what? I want to go ahead and I want to eat better. I want to go ahead and exercise, but I don't. It's hard for me to get out there and do that. I feel like I'm overweight. I feel like I just don't have the confidence to do that. What advice would you give someone to get going physically? Uh,
1: to take things at your own pace and start extraordinarily slow. When I when I finished Georgetown and moved to San Diego, I didn't have access to a lot of things that were free anymore because I hadn't started. I hadn't gotten involved with athletics at San Diego State. So. I didn't have access to a weight room and all of those things, and, and I hated to run. Not only did I not like schoolwork, but I did not like running. And I said, well, what could I do that's free? I could run, but I hate running. The first time I ran, Martin, I must have looked like the freak of the week. I ran by shuffling my feet like an old person. I must have shuffled my feet maybe 20 yards and shuffled my feet back. And that was my first time running. I wasn't even even running. Second time I did it, I went a little bit further and I, I was still shuffling my feet. I wasn't running. I started out that ridiculously slow to make sure that running wasn't painful to me. And I got up to running six miles a day, six days a week. And I was running at a pace that was a sub 10 minute mile. You have to start very, 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 very slowly in a way that is uh, that is pain-free to you in order for you to do something that you'll keep coming back to because it wasn't an unpleasant experience. When you start too fast, you got a friend who's who who runs all the time. They run t- 10 miles a day and you go running with them for the first time and they kill you guess what? You don't want to run again. Very few people are going to want to run after you can't move for the next five days. You couldn't breathe while you were running and you felt like a failure because this person is in such much greater shape than you. You have to start very tiny little baby steps and, and not be concerned with the timeline of when you get to whatever goal you have you'll get there when you get there
0: yeah that's that's i love that advice i i, I mean and what would you say to somebody um and before i'm going to start i guess i'm going to move on to the other part of your career but I, I i find this so fascinating these stories what would you say to people that say that um i'm too old to lift weights and can you tell i mean can you give kind of a, give our audience some advice about is weightlifting actually good for your bones Is it good for you
1: Oh, absolutely! I give them the same advice that I just provided. Start ridiculously slow and light. If you're older and you've never lifted weights, and you want to try to bench press, get yourself a five-pound dumbbell in one hand and a five-pound dumbbell in the other hand, and and get the technique down first with with very light weight, and then you gradually increase. To 7.5 pounds. Don't go from 5 to 10. Go from 7.5. And work your way up to the bar. And typically, an Olympic bar is going to be 45 pounds. And you just just take things slowly and steadily. Uh, Strength training resistance is good for your body to build up muscle mass. And that's done, ironically enough, by tearing down the muscle. You have to create little micro micro fractures in your muscle tissue in order for them to build up. Um, that's the advice that I would give. Just start everything light. Start with body weight exercises. Start with assisted body weight exercise. So, so there's railing behind me. You can hold on to this railing and learn how to do squats or lunges, right? So you're not, you're not doing your entire body weight. You just have to work your way up. And again, not be in a rush to reach any sort of goals and, that's when you can do something and create a habit that is a, a permanent habit, where your body is more used to exercising than than being sedentary.
0: I I love that, Sean. And let me ask you: You have so much energy. How do you, how did you transition from the sports life to your to working for nonprofits? And how did you how did that transpire? And how did you become a CEO? I know you started off. Um, we started out, well, you had a couple, you start out with embrace and now it's game changers. Can you give me the, kind of the, uh, the evolution of that?
1: So when I got done with my coaching career, I finished coaching. I was the director of strength and conditioning for Olympic sports at Ohio state at the Ohio state university. I resigned. I moved back to San Diego and didn't really know what I wanted to do. I took a job as a, a Regional manager for a dot com company in 2000. We all know what happened to the dot com, the, the bubble burst. And I got some advice from a friend to start a nonprofit. She gave me some reasons why I should. But every everything that we've ever done had a sports component to it. So our first program was very reflective of who I was as a person. We went into underprivileged middle school to teach children the importance of healthy lifestyle habits and cultural acceptance. And that program consisted of kickboxing class, a nutrition class in the classroom, a a healthy cooking class, and a cultural acceptance class that was in the classroom. In the healthy cooking classes, we would invite athletes and the kids' parents and the kids to learn how to cook a healthy meal and have the athletes there doing that with them, have the athletes doing kickboxing with them. And it was always about athletics for me because from a demographic standpoint, if you're on a team sport, whether it's football or basketball or soccer, you're going to be spending time with people who don't look like you, that don't have the same religious beliefs as you. And there's great value to that. In our society, because we don't have enough of that in our society. This country was set up for us to live in segregated communities. And we are still a segregated society in our country. So the people who actually participate in team sports are getting exposure that your average citizen is not getting. I'm spending time every day with a Latino guy. I'm spending every time every I'm spending time every day with a black girl. And I'm white. And if I wasn't a part of this team, I wouldn't spend time with any of these people and vice, and vice versa. So that's what's missing in our society. And, and sports actually lets us see what our society could be like in a best case scenario. If we just spent time with one another working toward a common goal, which is what sports is all about. So when I started my nonprofit, Embrace, Embrace is a noun and it's a verb. The verb is this. We want you to do this to any and everybody that you see. So all of our programs were desi- are designed to bring people from all different walks of life together to spend time serving someone else in need. I'm creating a team environment where there is no team environment. So whether we're helping these kids or we're serving the homeless population or we're remodeling homes of disabled veterans or we're bringing together law enforcement and non-law enforcement members of society to discuss problems and devise solutions together, the main goal of everything that we've done as an organization is to get you out of your own little ethnic, racial, religious bubble and get in this bubble that consists of everybody on a regular basis, just like you would do if you were a member of a football team, a basketball team, or a soccer
0: team. That's an amazing model. How what made you how did you get that model together? I I assume this is something that you created. What made you think of this model?
1: I lived the model. I was an athlete and I was a coach, so I was on both sides of that fence. I saw what happens when people of different races, ethnicities, and religions spend time with each other on a regular basis. They become friends. I have a story for you that I always tell. Two athletes at San Diego State. Both of them play off. They, both of them play offensive line. One is a white kid from Utah. One is a black kid from Compton. The white kid literally had never seen a black person in person until he got this scholarship and arrived at San Diego state. The black kid from Compton didn't spend much time at all with white people. Now they're in this, they're in this environment where they are thrust into being around people that they never spent time around. By the end of their first semester together as teammates, they requested to become roommates second semester. again. White kid from Utah, black kid from Compton. They wind up becoming best friends. And they wind up becoming the best man in each other's wedding. That is what our society could be if more people were open to doing that. Now, these two kids had to be open to going to this diverse environment and being around people that they might not have heard great things about. But they did it, and look what happened. So that example, seeing that from the outside as a coach, seeing these two athletes go through that process and knowing the relationship that I have as a result of of sports and being around different people, why can't we apply that model to our society and to corporate America? Why? Because people don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. If they wanted to do it, we have so few problems in, we have a, a lot fewer problems in this country, from a societal standpoint, than we have. The problems that we have are are, are a direct result of segregation and not spending time with one another on a personal level. When you do that, you realize we're human beings. Period. End of sentence.
0: So, how did embrace? Um, how long has embrace been around, and how did it expand to? Game Changers, and can you go into the evolution of Game Changers and what, what, okay. what that's about?
1: Our nonprofit is 18 years old. December 12th will be the six-year anniversary of the Game Changer program. So Game Changer came about as a result of my reaction to the spate of unarmed Black men being shot and killed by white male police officers during 2014, 2015. I was distraught by seeing that. And part of why I was distraught was around this time where um, Tamir Rice was being killed. That was the same time in the state of California that we were going through our marriage equality time. I don't know if you remember this, Martin, but Facebook. Facebook so many people had taken their profile picture and turned it into a rainbow flag picture. I don't know if you remember that. But that was a, that was the same time that these high profile murders were taking place. Now I'm seeing both. I'm seeing what people are seeing on TV and I'm also seeing this marriage equality thing and my white friends had turned their picture to the rainbow, rainbow flag. They weren't saying a damn thing about People who look like me that were being killed by people who look like them. And part of that reason was, Martin, I was their only black friend. Think about what I'm about to say to you. They had more gay friends than they had a black friend. And so when you're friends with someone, you want to support that person. When you see that your friend is being mistreated, you want to support. And that's why you saw all these rainbow flags profiles you didn't see anything being said about that because like chris rock said he got a joke he said all my all my black friends have a bunch of white friends all my white friends have one black friend it's a joke but he described my life once i became a professional so my reaction to that spate of unarmed black men being shot and killed by white male police officers was, after I was done complaining about it, what am I going to do about it? Because if you're just complaining about something, I mean, what are you really doing? So I look back at my sports background. I said, where does this race situation not exist as wholeheartedly as it does in the rest of, of our society? sports so i said we can use sports to do what sports already does if you go to a laker game or you go to a rams game or a chargers game or a clippers game or a sparks game look at the crowd crowd looks like you looks like me looks like everybody so let's go to an environment let's use an environment that already is a magnet that brings all different types of people together and let's let's talk about some of the problems that exist in our society that have gone and affected law enforcement community relations let's devise solutions together in that environment and let's implement those solutions that were devised by members of law enforcement and non-members of law enforcement what what better solution could you come up with than one that's reflective of both sides thinking that's how I came up with, with Game Changer.
0: Can you give me a picture, a sense of what one of these Game Changer meetings looks like and what, what do you speak about and what gets accomplished? What's the, What do the stakeholders look like?
1: So the stakeholders look like everybody. I mean, we want to cast a broad net out into society from an age standpoint. So you have youth, young adults, adults, all the skin colors in the spectrum. Atheist, Jew, Christian, Muslim. We want to bring everybody to the table as it relates to community participants. But we also want that type of diversity showing up that are members of law enforcement. So, and also a mindset. I don't like those people, or I do like those people. So we want people who are pro-police, anti-police, pro-community, not, you know, anti-community, to come together. And our focus group starts three hours before the start of a collegiate or professional sporting event. So we spend three hours together. We actually break bread together. So before we start our conversation, everyone fills out a pre-perception survey so we can get baseline data on how you feel about law enforcement community relations we go over the ground rules of behavior so that we make sure everybody communicates respectfully in a respected in a respectful manner and then we spend about 90 minutes talking about problems perceived problems we take a break dinner is served and then we have a working dinner where we spend 45 minutes to an hour devising solutions to what each group wants to discuss. So we get into small groups and each group must have at least one member of law enforcement in it so that the solutions that they devise, as I just mentioned, are reflective of law enforcement thinking and community resident thinking. Then each group reports back what problem that they addressed, five solutions that they came up with for that problem. Uh, Then we go to the game together which is in a casual environment. We just got times. We just got done spending three hours in a formal environment. Now we're in a casual environment where you do what friends do at a sporting event. You're watching the game, but you're talking about life. You're catching up on kids. In this case, you're finding out what you have in common with one another. You know, I have kids that play soccer or I like Buffalo Trace bourbon. All of those things that people talk about that you wouldn't have an opportunity to discover that you had in common when a cop pulls you over because he or she says you were speeding and you think you weren't. And that's not not a pleasant interaction. We're not spending quality time with one another. Police officers actually working. So we've created this environment, like I shared with you before, we have to create the environment because the environment is not going to create itself us to spend quality time talking about problems solutions discovering what we agree on what we disagree on and that time together is valuable not just from a law enforcement community standpoint but from a community to community standpoint because that oftentimes we will have somebody for example who is let's just say from bel air in the same room with someone who's from watts Well, how often do they spend time together? So it's really important that community resident and community resident spend that type of quality time together with one another as well. Take law enforcement out of it. You know, I might be a Fox News guy. You might be a CNN guy. And we don't see eye to eye. But now we're spending time with one another. And it's like, well, I didn't know you were a Laker fan, too. What else do we have in common? You're not... You're not that bad of a person, after all.
0: You know what I mean? Absolutely. There's value to know. What what? This is amazing. I absolutely love it. What? um, It's a great concept. I love the energy. I love what you're you're putting out there. What teams are involved in it, and what have been the results?
1: So, first question. We've had Major League Baseball teams: the Padres, the Dodgers. And the Angels, I said, the Angels, is the only they're the only baseball team that took us into their building and hosted us completely. The other two teams provided tickets to the games, and we had to find another place for um, our focus group to occur. We're about to do our first NFL event with the Rams. Uh, the, the Lakers, we've done a number of events with the Lakers, but this was during COVID, and our events with the Lakers were via Zoom. USC, UCLA, Ohio State, San Diego State, um, Loyola Marymount, uh, we've done a lot of work on college campuses. Uh, we're about to leave and go across the country to the Virginia Commonwealth University because we have a grant, we have a state grant with them. So we're doing work with law enforcement in Virginia and community residents. So we're around the country, uh, I can get you a list of, of, of partners, but that that partner list is, is, is growing. We've done work with the LA Galaxy. I still haven't done anything with the LA Football Club, the, the Championship LA Football Club, I, I might say. LA has been the city of champions over the last three years, hasn't it, right? So we're always looking for new partners. Do you see your school or team as a hub for civic engagement? That that's really what it comes down to. And every a, a, any school or professional sports team could be. Because you already have the general public coming to see your games as it is.
0: What are so, what are what are some of the what are some of the outcomes?
1: Sure. So we have conducted two data analyses, one in 2018 and one in 2020. And generally speaking, though the, the results of those analyses show that the game changer model is highly effective at changing people's perceptions and changing their behavior. And most of the behavior change has to do with how you communicate with people. Whether you're communicating at all or how you're communicating. Are you communicating in a way that is strictly based on police business or are you getting out of your squad car and saying good morning to people? right it makes a difference and you know this martin not everybody's happy go lucky and and cheery all the time not everybody wants to talk but if you're a public servant your job is to communicate and if you're an effective public servant you must be an effective communicator if you're a poor public servant that means private. What's included in that is that you are a poor communicator. So those are some of the results, you know, from a 30,000-foot view. That if you want to change people's perception, that leads to a change in behavior, leads to a change in outcomes. We have to talk about problems and devise solutions to those problems together. It's not rocket science. It's how our society used to work. Before these, right? And I say we're supposed to be talking on these. We spend most of our time texting on these.
0: Right? right. So yeah. technology
1: right. has helped us, but it's also hurt us as well.
0: Yeah, Sean, so that it's just amazing. And, and and I have some final questions I want to ask you. Um, and then at the end, I want to, I definitely want to make sure that I that you're able to um, provide information on how they can become involved with your organization and support your organization. Um, man, you—I mean—I could talk to you for hours. It's great, great insight about life and communication and getting along with people and diversity. I love these conversations. What are your future goals?
1: I want to put a dent in the the amount of violence, unnecessary violence that takes place between law enforcement and many communities, not all. I also, want to increase the education in those communities and within law enforcement and. I want to be able to do that by utilizing technology because, you know, bringing people together 30 at a time, that's not going to get it done. We've got to be able to bring people together, you know, masses of people together on a regular basis. And the only way we're really going to be able to do that is to do in-person events, but also utilize technology. Right. So that's one of my goals. And in doing that, I want it to improve race relations in this country. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's one of the biggest problems in this country, if not the biggest problem in this. Now, it's not a problem for everybody, but it's typically a problem for people of color. And the equality that most people want isn't necessarily like I want to be equal to what your average white citizen in this country has. There's this thing called the Constitution. I just want that. I want the words on that document to apply to me wholeheartedly and equally.
0: Period. That's that's amazing. If
1: if the document says that, I want that to to apply to me.
0: But then what is left on your bucket list?
1: Well, I just went to Cuba, (laughs) and that was on my bucket list. Um, I don't know. You know, improving race relations in this country is a bucket list thing for me. And I can't, it's not going to be something that I can do alone. I went to Cuba by myself. I need a whole lot of people that feel like they want to be a part of that solution because it really would make the, the, the tone and the vibe in our country, uh, a lot more positive than, than what it is. And the only way to do that is to spend time in person time with those people, whoever you think those people are, that's who we need to bring together on a regular basis, because you will find out that those people are actually you.
0: Yeah. I I love that. And what would the older self The older Sean, tell the younger Sean if you had to to give words of advice to yourself. The older version of you versus the younger. If you were to tell the younger version of yourself something, what would it be?
1: Don't try to fit in. I told you, um, I went to Catholic grade school for several years. I was the only black kid in my class. And being the only black kid in your class, in your classroom full of white people, you're trying to fit in where visually there's no way you can fit it. Uh, our, our teacher one year, uh, she did this contest, bring in your baby picture and we're going to guess who's who. Well, I'm the only black kid in the class, bro. And the joke was, well, we all know we're getting at least one right. And that made me feel a certain way, like you don't belong, right? Well, don't try and belong. Be who you are because I've fast forwarded now and I'm in my 50s. And I've achieved, I'm starting to achieve a level of success that I never did because for the first time in my life, I've created an environment where I can be exactly who I am. And if you don't like me, you have other options. But all of a sudden, there is a market for me and who I am and what comes out of my mouth based on my experience around you. Whoever you are, I've spent a great deal of time with you.
0: Oh man, I I love that. Right? I, yeah, man, I I guess like I, I, I love I love the wisdom that you've been passing on today. I mean, yeah, don't good.
1: try and fit in. Be who you are, and at some point the world will yield to you. If you're okay. doing something positive. If you're if you're doing if you're Jeffrey Dahmer, different story.
0: <laughs> what if you if
1: you're doing something positive, if that's who you are. Don't try and fit and keep doing that. And at some point, people are going to be like, oh, he or she was right all along. We should have gotten <laughs> down with them from the beginning.
0: I love it. What is, what is your guilty pleasure? It could be food-wise. It could be anything.
1: French fries and French fries.
0: <laughs> favorite, uh, favorite music? Hip-hop. And what group? What group do I- you like?
1: You, you see over my left shoulder?
0: You see hear. that? I can't see it, Harley.
1: That's the Wu Tang, bro.
0: Oh, gotcha, Elder. That's I love it. I love it. I love it. And then, if you could be a superhero, who would it be?
1: My grandfather.
0: Oh, I love that. And uh, if you could go back into any any time in history, I, keep, could... I want
1: you to keep in mind superheroes have flaws. My grandfather was not a perfect person.
0: All right, I love that. And um. So if you could go back in time um who would you like to meet and what would you say to them and it, it could be it could be it could two, be, it two, two, be
1: two people Jesus Christ and muhammad ali
0: and what would you say
1: what would i say? I do a lot of listening i would I, I wouldn't have i wouldn't have a whole lot to to say i want to I want them to do most of of the talking, you know.
0: <laughs> what, do
1: you mean, what, what do you say to Jesus, bro?
0: <laughs> yeah, and then uh, what do you want to be remembered for when you leave this earth? When people think when, when people say Sean Shepherd in a hundred years from now, what what do you want to be remembered for?
1: Um, that I cared. And I wanted to help and I was unconcerned about your opinion of me wanting to help and caring.
0: All oh, right, I love right? that. Right, so if
1: you're not about those things, then you're not about those things, right? Um, too bad for you, you're, you're, you're missing out in life if you're not caring and helping others and, uh, you know. Um, but that's what I want to be remembered for. That dude was genuine, he was authentic. He cared, he wanted to help, um, he loved and he was a good guy. And I wasn't, I haven't always been a good guy. There's been a lot of work that I've had to put in to be that person of character who does behind closed doors, what he does in, in broad daylight. And a lot of people would say, well, you're putting an awful lot of pressure on yourself to be perfect. I didn't say I was perfect, but if I tell you I'm doing something, I'm, I'm doing it, you know, uh, and it, that wasn't always the case. I would want to create this facade of me doing things, but I let, I let my, you know, we spend most of our life working. We spend a third of our life asleep. We spend most, the rest of our time working. Well, the work that I do is reflective of who I am. I don't right. just have a job. I have, this is my calling.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely love that, Sean. And Sean, let me ask you this. If somebody would want to be part of your organization or get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that?
1: You can go to GameChanger1.org. That's GameChanger, singular, the number one, .org. And that's the best way to get in touch with me. You can go to the contact tab, send an email, and I'll I'll get it. But that's the best way to, go, to, to reach me. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel. By the way, Mart- Martin, I forgot to tell you, All of our Game Changer events are recorded, whether it's this or in person. So we've got hundreds of hours of footage of members of the community and members of law enforcement saying things that you're not going to see on Fox, CNN or MSNBC. You're not going to see it there. Right. And they can go to the original Game Changer. That's the YouTube channel. It's all one word, the the original Game Changer YouTube channel. And, and then, then I know we talked We talked about my, my, my podcast.
0: Yes, I was just going to say, can you give a shout-out to your – you got to give a shout-out for your podcast as well.
1: Cops and convicts. Cops and convicts can be found on Instagram, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. And that's where I interview members of law enforcement, typically ex-members of law enforcement, so they can speak freely, Martin. They can say whatever they want now that they're ex-members of law enforcement and people who have been incarcerated. And you will find out that there's a, there's a very thin line between those two groups when it comes to the people that they are, now they made different decisions. One wound them up as wearing a badge and a gun and the other one wound them up in prison. But we have met police officers where if they're being honest they said, you know, I could have ended up in prison before I became a cop. And I've spent time working with cops who did wind up in prison. So how different are we really when we sit down and take the time to learn about each other? And I, love, mm-hmm. I love that podcast. I love the podcast because I give, I, I provide an outlet for people to talk about who they are, whether their profession or, or what got them to the point where they were incarcerated. And what are they doing now? What are they doing now as people now they're no longer a cop? and They're no longer incarcerated.
0: Well, I just want to tell you, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And if you like the podcast, give it a thumbs up. Thank you so much, Sean, for being on here. You've been a wonderful guest and uh, we will love to have you on another time in the future. You have so much information to give everybody. And it's just been a real delight to interview you. Thank you so much for your energy.
1: Thank you. I uh, really appreciate it, Mark.
0: Okay, take care. Right, bye-bye.